Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. And this is the podcast where I talk to other critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How are things with you? This is episode number 19, recorded just this week, and today I talk with Naomi Hammond and Brett Abenbrook. This interview was recorded on good old Zoom, and there were a few internet wobbles initially for one of us, but thanks Brett for dialing in on your phone. Dr Naomi Hammond is the Operations Lead and Senior Research Fellow in the Critical Care Division at the George Institute, Sydney. She also works part-time as the Intensive Care Clinical Research Manager at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney. Naomi also holds a number of other appointments at the University of New South Wales, is Vice-Chair of the ANZAC's Clinical Trials Group Intensive Care Research Coordinator Group, a Senior Research Fellow with the Australian Sepsis Network, an Editorial Board Member for Australian Critical Care Journal, and sits on the Australian College of Critical Care Nurses National Research Advisory Panel. Her main research interests include fluid resuscitation, sepsis, fever management, knowledge translation and implementation research, health economics, and long-term outcomes following critical illness. Dr Brett Abenbrook is the Program Manager of the Australian Sepsis Network in the Critical Care Division at the George Institute. Brett is a registered nurse with extensive critical care, clinical, education and management experience. In May 2018, he completed his doctoral studies into the efficiency and effectiveness of organisational models in critical care and the impact on patient and nurse outcomes. In this episode, we talk about sepsis, and this has been recorded to mark World Sepsis Day 2020. We discuss what sepsis is, the global burden of this devastating disease, public and staff awareness of sepsis, what current research is ongoing into sepsis, what survivorship and post-sepsis syndrome look like, and highlight the work of the Australian Sepsis Network. We also hear about the power of consumer stories and engagement. So, grab a cuppa, sit back, and have a listen to the interview. Okay, so Naomi and Brett, thank you so much for joining me today. And what we've managed to do is tie in the three of us um, between Sydney and Queensland and Auckland. And we'll be able to get this podcast up on World Sepsis Day, which is this coming Sunday, the 13th of September. So I thought we'd just start a little bit first um, talking about who you both are. So you're both critical care nurses. And... You know, it'd be really great if you could just introduce yourselves and explain a little bit about where you've got to where you are today. So maybe ladies first, Naomi, (laughs) how about that? Sounds good. Uh, Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for the invitation um, to Brett and I to join this podcast and be able to, um, I guess, shine a light on sepsis in this important this uh, important week for, for sepsis. So um, I guess, uh, or maybe I should start, how did I get into nursing? It was really my mum. Um, who um, got me into nursing. I was a little bit um, 
after school, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but I loved science and I loved people. So that was um, what I did and uh, found that it was uh, the perfect um, kind of vocation for me uh, and profession. Um, I quickly got into intensive care nursing, I think uh, working on a very busy surgical ward um, really highlighted some of the key um, uh, I guess issues for um, our patients that we see within the hospitals and it was a ward that required you to be on your toes all the time and um, have you know extreme um, uh, time management skills um, and one of the uh, illnesses that we'd see a lot of very early was sepsis actually and so um, the early recognition of sepsis wasn't really uh, a big part of the nursing um, uh, I guess uh, education at that time so it was something that I learned uh, pretty quickly and then um, was managed to get into intensive care so, so that's really how I became um, a, a critical care nurse and then research um, kind of just fell again in my lap. Um, I studied a fair bit and seemed to um, enjoy, I guess, that research um, aspect of, of my practice and um, proceeded to do it. So I had a master's of um, nursing, but then went into a master's of public health and um, subsequently a, a PhD. And I did um, have very good mentors um, that really helped, um, I guess, uh, uh, progress me through through a research pathway and I now currently work uh, full-time as a critical care nurse researcher um, uh, and uh, um, academic I guess uh, at the George Institute and also Royal North Shore Hospital. Sorry that was a very long intro. <laughs> <laughs> well there's quite a lot to cover though isn't there? <laughs> there's a lot of years to cover there. <laughs> and so just briefly before we move on to Brett your PhD, what did you investigate there? So um, my PhD was uh, in fluid resuscitation and um, anyone who's aware of the Australian and New Zealand Clinical um, Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group would be very well aware of the um, uh, trials in fluid resuscitation. And so my uh, PhD supervisors, uh, Simon Finfer and John Myberg, were key um, leaders in, in this, uh, this work of fluid resuscitation. So my PhD came off the, the back of um, those uh, big trials and I looked at uh, the translation of um, the evidence into practice and really, um, I guess my work, uh, the, the results from that work um, helped um, design and um, currently conduct another fluid trial called the PLUS study. So looking at plasma light versus saline. Excellent, and I'm sure a lot of the uh, listeners will be participating in PLUS as we are. Yes. So yeah, <laughs> looking forward to that <laughs> and the hearing the results of that in time. So yeah, thank you. And Brett, yes. Hello. <laughs> nice to meet you. you so tell us a little bit about your journey in nursing and critical care in particular. Yeah, well, I, I pretty preempt uh, Naomi a fair way because I was pretty one of the last hospital-based trained nurses nursing groups and then went back and did a science degree and other things post that time. During uh, my training I think uh, I was sent off to ICU for the leave as a student nurse and walked into this very controlled environment and I thought that's it for me. <laughs> I'm going back there directly. Um, but interestingly in those years or so in between that period and when I went back as a you know, registered nurse somebody discovered CPAP and people being awake on a ventilator and that really changed the situation but nevertheless um, 
it, uh, it was where I sort of found my passion for nursing. I love that integration of science and providing clinical care and just bringing that sort of whole holistic nature to intensive care. Um, I did about 20 odd years clinically and in management and education, but that was between emergency and ICU. So I was the clinical nurse consultant and uh, nurse manager in ED in a couple of hospitals and also in ICU in a couple of hospitals. So I sort of had a foot in each camp. And um, over that time, my interest really grew in uh, the development and the planning of new hospital services around critical care, about how to deliver care from an organisational perspective, uh, looking at workforce models and a whole lot of other sort of key aspects around service delivery. And that then shaped my uh, PhD, which I went on to do after managing a large ICU in Sydney. So um, during my time in intensive care, I was managing a large unit in Sydney at Royal Prince Alfred. And uh, during that period, we went from a 12-bed unit to a 54-bed hot floor service. And there wasn't any real evidence around about how to manage one of those services. And it was uh, sort of one of the first models before what is now a fairly typical type of service delivery. So I looked at sort of pre and post implementation of the model impact on patient outcomes and nurse outcomes actually from a workforce perspective. Um, so that was my study. Um, over that period, I held a role at across New South Wales as the critical care service planning coordinator, and that was across ED, retrieval services, ICU. Um, and did that for about 10 years or so, and then eventually developed my own business. Yeah, so the business sort of was about three or four years consulting to hospitals on how to set up new hospital services. Um, and then was picked up by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality to head up some of the clinical safety programs across Australia. Uh, it was at that point that um, I was I'd finished my PhD, was still interested in following some academia, but also keen to uh, get back into the workforce um, in a sort of a, a new role, I guess. And uh, the sepsis, uh, the ASN sepsis program coordinator position became available and Naomi reached out to me and we discussed and it's a, a role that I uh, I have to say is challenging, but I highly value because it helps me bring together all of the experience I've had, the academic side of things that I've managed to um, gain experience in. And also I have a huge role dealing with consumers and survivors and families, uh, as well as clinicians. So I'm still maintaining those networks, which I really value. Mm, and so nice to see all the different elements of the whole disease, isn't it? You know, sort of from woe to go and all the people involved in it. So just taking a step back and we'll come back to your role because this is going to be quite important to understand what you do. <laughs> Naomi, do you want to tell us a little bit about the George Institute because this is where um, Brett and yourself both work and um, sort of will flow into a little bit about the sepsis network as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the George Institute for Global Health, uh, it's a um, large research institute um, that was set up by um, 20 years ago now by two epidemiologists um, who and researchers uh, who were keen, I guess, to um, make an impact uh, in a broader sense. Um, and that's really how the George came about. And, and they worked out of a small office at Royal North Shore Hospital originally. Um, and uh, in respects to critical care, one of the first uh, trials that the George Institute uh, did was actually the SAFE study. 
which you would know, Rachel. So that's a, that was one of that was our first critical care trial globally, the largest trial um, that we did, and that was in fluid resuscitation. So something uh, I guess close to my heart. Um, but that was led through um, all the um, operational aspects were led through the George Institute. So the George is um, uh, in oh how many countries? It's in um, many countries, I don't know the numbers, sorry, off the top of my head. Uh, the, the main areas we work in um, are um, Australia, we have offices in Australia, India, China, uh, with um, the UK, we've got an office and the UK office works closely with Africa um, alliances um, and there's uh, offices in the US. Now, part of the George um, Institute, uh, that uh, we do multiple uh, different areas of research, one being critical care, but there's cardiovascular, there's um, neuro, um, uh, uh, mental health, there's a whole gamut of different um, work that we do. One of the big aspects of, of the work we do is actually um, work within uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, group. We've got very good um, networks and committees that are set up to appropriately be able to um, uh, look look at uh, research within these groups um, that's culturally appropriate. But yeah, I guess the George is um, a big research institute. We've um, we're very successful, uh, I guess, um, in our impact uh, and the work that we produce. Uh, we work a lot with government, and this is actually one of the um, uh, areas that what Brett is doing. Uh, with the Australian Sepsis Network is working closely um, with uh, advocacy within sepsis and, mm -hmm. and government. So tell us about the Australian Sepsis Network. Over to me? Yep. Yes. <laughs> yeah. To you, Brett. So, um, I guess the Australian Sepsis ne Network was really the, uh, the, the baby of Professor Simon Finfer, who's um, one of the sort of global leading uh, academic clinicians in the sepsis critical care space and uh, seeing that you know four or five years ago there was no real national advocacy body in Australia for sepsis and so with that he was he managed to um, convince the George to uh, host the ASN as they call it but there was no real resourcing as such allocated so the way in which the network functioned was to have funds unexpended from efficient projects redirected I guess um, increasingly, the requirement for a, uh, a formalised Australian sepsis network became apparent, particularly in around 2017, um, when the World Health Assembly declared sepsis a global health emergency. Um, then they made a resolution to which the, all the member states signed up to develop national action plans for the sepsis. So the Australian Sepsis Network was really the vehicle through which that process occurred in Australia. The aim of the, the network is not to replace what's happening locally in the states and territories and, and local champions and best practice, but it's to harness that expertise and then to try to uh, collaborate on specific areas around uh, sepsis. Um, to harness the, you know, the best evidence-based practice there is, identify the gaps and work together to address those. Um, so the network really works right across the full spectrum. 
we look at uh, to do with uh, prevention awareness and advocacy in, in that space in terms of dealing with government, consumer, media, raising awareness, recognition, education. So the Australian Sepsis Network, I think, uh, I'm not sure where I got up to, but I was mentioning that it was really the uh, the baby of Professor Simon Simpler, who's uh, one of the sort of global sepsis academic and clinical leads. Uh, he's an academic fellow at the George and uh, staff specialist Ron Shaw and also the director of the SAN ICU. Um, he saw a need for a network to coordinate activities around sepsis across Australia. Um, so he started the, uh, managed to have the George agree to sponsor the network, but there was no real resources at the time. That was about five years ago. Um, 2017, the World Health Organization identified sepsis as a global health priority and uh, resolution was made uh, seeking cooperation from all the member states to develop national action plans with Jano and New Zealand. They've been working on one and we've been, we worked on ours. Um, and with that process uh, in 2017, we produced a national action plan and therefore the network really needed to be properly resourced to deliver on that. So the network, um, the objective, the mission I guess of the network is not really to duplicate or to uh, obstruct any sort of local activities or state activities. It's really to harness that expertise and, and evidence-based practice, try to promulgate that to areas where there's limited resources, so in rural, remote and other sort of areas as well. And um, to, to really um, harness a, a collaboration model across uh, clinical policy, consumers and special interest groups such as paediatrics and neonates. So, I came onto the role in March last year. Um, we've spent a lot of time establishing our uh, stakeholder engagement networks to work on the various aspects of the National Action Plan and to, to build a national coordination around awareness and uh, improving clinical care and outcomes. Um, the Action Plan itself has four key areas around uh, awareness, advocacy, uh, research, recognition uh, and education clinical care and post-sepsis uh, support models. Underpinning those four key sort of goals are 14 recommendations which we're progressing on now and I'm happy to say that we've made progress on all of those recommendations to some degree which is great and um, I think one of the biggest challenges for us was as we're a non-profit, non-regulatory type body is to engage with government to ensure that anything we produce actually gets traction in the health services. Um, this year we've had some big steps forward in that regard, so working with the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality, we're doing leading on a, a number of different aspects around improving um, sepsis management, recognition, research, coding, um, uh, early sepsis triggers review, uh, uh, recognition, um, looking at a clinical care standards for best practice care and also a post sepsis care coordination model. Working with the Australian Commission means that the work we do will be embedded in the um, accreditation quality appraisal process that happens in health services. So there's sort of a, a driver, if you like, for people to adopt best practice as well as um, for health services to um, support the change because obviously there's you know, resource implications and things. Um, yeah, so that's sort of the network in a nutshell um, and um, as I said, a lot of it is our work is guided by the National Action Plan. 
One other area that is uh, a fairly large amount of effort for us is we also support the Asia-Pacific Sepsis Alliance, which is a, um, a collaboration of 22 countries, including New Zealand, uh, where we're sort of looking at issues across the whole Asia-Pacific region um, that can be addressed, which is challenging given that there's uh, higher, lower, middle-income countries that need to consider their uh, local context. Um, but we're supporting that organisation at the moment and we're getting some great collaboration around that. So that's the uh, ASE in a nutshell. Yeah, so I love how you say in a nutshell. I mean, it's a pretty big nut, right? So um, <laughs> it's a massive undertaking and a massive job in spanning, you know, multiple agencies, multiple stakeholders, multiple countries. Um, where do you start? So I guess for this conversation, you know, why don't we start with what is sepsis? Because we sort of use the term quite freely and quite broadly. And perhaps people, do people have a really good understanding of what sepsis is, do you think? Do you want me to take that, Brett? Yep. Assuming I'm there. Yeah, so know. I think, um, yeah, I agree. Um, Rachel, I love it that uh, Brett just wraps up the ASN in, um, in a nutshell. Uh, it's taken a um, huge amount of time and um, a lot of effort, but uh, we think it's worthwhile. I think what your um, your question about well, what is sepsis and do people recognise it is a, a really important one because um, I guess we know that, that people don't. So if we just take it back, um, I think the definitions of, of sepsis have um, changed, I guess, a bit over time and also nomenclature of sepsis is also changed. So um, we used to hear sep septicemia and um, blood poisoning. Um, but we know we've tried to move away from that to really describe what the um, syndrome is, uh, which can be devastating. And so as a data, uh, uh, data dictionary um, a definition, sorry, I'm using research terms there, but I mean a dictionary definition, um, it, it's uh, it's considered to be um, a, uh, like a life-threatening or organ dysfunction that's caused by the body's response to the infection. And so um, the reason it's so um, devastating is that it can lead to a um, shock state, um, so septic shock and multi-organ um, failure and, and I guess ultimately death. Um, so if it's not uh, recognised early and treated early, then, then this is the pathway um, that can occur. And um, I guess sepsis is, is a final, it's known to be a final common uh, pathway um, to death from most infectious diseases worldwide, uh, if left untreated. So it is um, it is a, an important um, thing, uh, definition, I guess, to understand um, and be aware of that. And if we just think of what the prevalence of, um, of sepsis is, uh, because the definition of it, uh, defining of it has been so difficult and recognition has been so difficult, the actual um, describing of the burden has also been difficult. Um, and I think this year uh, we were fortunate to have a publication by Christina Rudd, who's from the US. Um, it was a global burden of disease report uh, that looked at um, the uh, epidemiology of sepsis um, around the world. And, and it showed um, that we've 
our previous uh, estimates have very under um, underreported basically, and so what what that report has found is that around 50 million people um, are, are impacted by sepsis uh, uh, yearly around the globe, and there's around 11 million deaths each year from sepsis, and that burden is um, predominantly within the uh, lower middle income countries. Uh, but also in, um, I guess, our populations that are most vulnerable. So those, um, like the elderly, uh, the children, um, those who are immunocompromised, etc. Um, obviously, the uh, burden in the uh, indigenous population in Australia is uh, is significantly higher, uh, but it's very much um, only estimated, I guess, in terms of what our understanding is. Um, there were papers that have come out over the last few years suggesting that the burden of uh, sepsis in the Northern Territory, for example, in remote communities is the highest globally, even when you consider some of the lower income countries um, in the region. Um, and, in, and in Australia, you know, one of the key factors that was sort of, I guess, not really appreciated or able to be clarified is the fact that 80% of cases of sepsis occur outside of hospital so you know often what we're seeing is just the peak of uh, the tip of the iceberg mm. and this year as the numbers were um, were reconciled according to the paper that Naomi mentioned from Christina Rudd we had understood from our ICU numbers that you know there's about 18,000 cases a year in Australia with about 5,000 deaths since they've broadened the uh, the the definition and looking beyond the critical care environment, it's actually gone up now to about 55,000 cases in Australia, um, is considered to be more closely the estimate, with around about a cost of 1.5 billion per year. Just in Australia. Just in Australia. Yeah. And there's around, it's just under 9,000 deaths, isn't it, per year in Australia? Yes. That's crazy, isn't it? You know, for a disease that is preventable? Yes. Largely. So I think that might be a nice um, segue to, I guess, uh, COVID and um, COVID-19 and sepsis. So I think um, COVID-19 has really highlighted um, the, the um, issues that we have around um, sepsis in general. So um, people... Um, forgetting that uh, infectious diseases are a um, huge uh, burden um, on mortality and morbidity around the world and and the things that prevent infectious diseases a lot of the times the things that um, we are now trying to do with COVID so um, you know good hand hygiene uh, um, if there were <laughs> vaccines available for a disease you would um, be recommending to vaccinate against those um, I think uh, you know general um, uh, kind of social distancing or not going to work when sick, are all the things that are um, at the moment we're looking at COVID to try and prevent the the spread. But it's um, these um, measures could be used, say, with influenza, which we know has significantly reduced uh, since we've been doing this uh, for COVID, and and all the these COVID and pneumonia um, influenza. Um, and other infectious diseases all can lead to sepsis. Fascinating, isn't it? So maybe COVID's actually t trying to teach us some really big life lessons <laughs> to carry forward, do you think? Probably. <laughs> <laughs>
think we'll all come out of this with a lot of learnings, won't we, that we take take forwards. Well, I think, um, you know, the, we know as, as, as nurses and critical care um, professionals that um, the only real treatments for sepsis, um, there's no um, a golden bullet, you know, it's um, antimicrobials uh, early, um, appropriate antimicrobials or antibiotics um, and fluid resuscitation, but really um, it's supportive care as well within the intensive care unit if you become severely um, unwell and, and um, develop septic shock. And, and at the moment with COVID, we don't have, well, actually, well, we don't have anything. We do have something. We have steroids, <laughs> the controversial steroids. Um, yeah, but really it's supportive care, right, in the ICU um, or hospitals. So possibly one of the things, I guess, with sepsis is that lack of awareness, particularly um, maybe from a public perspective. Would either of you like to comment on that and how that can be addressed? Sure, I can, I can talk to that briefly. Um, so um, in 2016, we did a uh, national survey of sepsis awareness and um, which showed that only about 14% of people had actually heard, knew any of the symptoms around sepsis. And what was confusing to many people is the different terminology. So obviously the septicemia, blood poisoning, you know, toxic syndrome, things like that. People interchange those terms, which means when people are talking about it, it's very hard for them to think in their mind, well, this is sepsis, which is the body's reaction to an infection. And through that, it means that the awareness has also been diluted. We just re re um, repeated that survey in July 2020. And um, we are happy to say that there has been an increase in sepsis awareness by about 20% in four years, which is great. Wow. And what was interesting was that was uh, compared to the other big ticket items such as stroke and heart disease and leukaemia and other things, um, they, their changes were 1% or 2% either way from their 2016 um, uh, levels, whereas sepsis had actually jumped up by 20%. So that was really good to hear. And what was telling in that is that Queensland actually had the highest uh, level of sepsis awareness. And what that coincided with was a state government investment in sepsis at the program level for the state to raise awareness, education and clinical care in terms of pathways. Um, the other statistics that come out of that survey suggest, for example, that um, only 4% of Australians really know that one in three people from sepsis will likely die. So that's fairly low. Um, but we asked a question around COVID, and obviously it's an emerging area, but 17% of Australians indicated in July this year that they thought there might be a link between sepsis and, and COVID, and which was sort of encouraging, really, given it's sort of early days in that space as well. And um, what it did confirm also is that the, um, the burden of sepsis in the Indigenous communities in Australia still remains incredibly high and that um, there is increased awareness in those areas about that, but it's the accessing the clinical health services, which is you know, obviously a key, key obstruction to getting treatment on time. So I think you know, awareness across the public sector and the healthcare sector um, is improving, but it's very slow, it's very piecemeal. Um, I think COVID provides us with an opportunity perhaps to actually escalate that message 
but we are still yet to see the media embrace the term of sepsis when they talk about people dying from COVID, from overwhelming inflammation and other things. That's a really good point, isn't it? Because so much of it is around the terminology that we use and people's understanding of that. And if you can um, link one of your big ticket items as such in terms of COVID to sepsis, um, then possibly the the payoff is going to be larger, right, in terms of public awareness, because everyone knows everything about COVID currently, don't they? Yes, Absolutely. and the word ventilator now think, is in everybody's yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and ICU, which I'm, I'm happy, you know, about that people understand what an intensive care unit is and what a ventilator is, but you do need nurses still to um, make sure you can do, you can actually ventilate people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I think um, like it's a really. Oh, sorry, Brett, you go ahead. I, I know I was going to say on that point. Interestingly, seeing the footage in the media when they film COVID ICUs, if you like, it really I think reflects well how what a complex environment mm -hmm. um, it is for really sick patients, um, particularly when you've got this multi-system organ failure. Um, and sort of an emerging sort of changing condition that requires multiple organ support, you know, and I think that visualisation on TV and that for people in the media, I think is really bringing home why it is healthcare is just so complicated, why it is expensive, um, but why it has to be properly resourced because obviously the better resourced, um, the more effective the interventions earlier, hopefully, which then hopefully get patients turned around more quickly, better outcomes if they're you know, salvageable. You know. It's mm, mm, interesting, eh? And so your survey and the results of that are fascinating in terms of the increased awareness of um, sepsis. How long in the future do you think that will take to translate into improved outcomes um, or reduced, you know, um, numbers? Um, gee, I, I think we're really at the beginning of the journey yeah. uh, because obviously, you know, one of the themes of this year's World Sepsis Day that we're doing on a social media push is the faces of sepsis and the beginning quote is, I had sepsis, it started from and the diversity of the triggering events mm. is, is quite staggering, you know, bladder infections, uh, injured elbows, a sore throat, the flu, sore throat, you know, yeah. yeah, things like that, and um, so I think what's happening is there is a, an emerging awareness that sepsis is often the consequence of a number of different things that are, you know, um, exacerbated by infection, and um, which can then trigger the body's reaction to the infection, mm -hmm. um, which then causes its own organs to be damaged. Uh, but it's very hard to explain that to the public in a very concise way. And mm. so I think sepsis 3 definition at the moment probably captures it the best, um, which is, as Naomi said at the beginning of this discussion, you know, it's around, uh, you know, infection-related organ dysfunction and, um, you know, the body's response to that, uh, to the infection. So um, I, I think we're at the beginning of the journey. I think it's becoming more mainstream. I think it is becoming a big ticket item. I think it can be something that's pointed towards as a way in which to explain why somebody deteriorated so quickly when it's very vague, because often sections are very vague. And one of the areas of work we're doing at the moment around early recognition 
is a, a large, we just finished a large systematic um, review on sepsis triggers of early recognition across primary care, pre-hospital and acute care settings. And uh, we're still wearing the scars from that because it's uh, quite huge in scope. <laughs> across uh, different right. cohorts of patients, neonates, paediatric adult and maternal. Um, and what we sort of looked at there was to look at what are the triggers in uh, the, these sort of healthcare settings which trigger staff to think this person could could be developing sepsis or, and largely it is uh, closely aligned to patient deterioration uh, factors which are sort of part of generic sort of monitoring practices. The, the challenge seems to be putting together when you have a number of parameters which aren't completely deranged which are beginning to derange relative of each other. So you get a sort of a slight drop in saturation, an increased heart rate, you know, a mild temperature, a bit of urine output dropping off, not dramatic. But that's the sort of, that's that's a sweet spot. We want the clinicians, for example, or even the public to recognise, I don't feel that well. Are they going to see someone and say, could this be sepsis? Well, you see, that nicely preempted my question about how well you thought, um, you know, ICU or hospital staff actually spotted sepsis. Because I think often, you know, like you say, that you get those vague sort of symptoms that you think, oh, there's something just not quite right with this patient. Um, and that's often when they're starting to um, head down the track, aren't they? That's right. I think um, we sometimes get a little bit um, comfortable within the in our hospital setting that uh, we are monitoring um, patients and um, and I'm not talking about intensive care really it's um, the ward um, based care where you, you're kind of you're busy you're, you're across many um, patients and many different um, diseases and, and caring for them but it's that continuous monitoring of patients and actually taking it in and and responding and I think uh, we've done very well um, around the world with trying to um, capture that deteriorating patient in respects to developing uh, early warning systems that can be used, um, which have, I think would have saved many, many lives um, just from that, uh, being able to document uh, vital signs onto a chart that's either colour-coded uh, or gives you um, a directive about um, escalating uh, the potential um, care of that patient that looks like they may be deteriorating. I think um, if we go back to the survey that, that Brett was talking about, um, the same kind of aspects apply in respects to um, sepsis um, symptoms and that recognition. So for our um, health healthcare professionals, um, would love for them to try and um, create awareness um, within their own networks and um, amongst their family and look at what those uh, sepsis uh, symptoms might be in the community. Um, we know that the survey, um, I think it was around 20% of Australians actually uh, recognise sepsis uh, symptoms, um, which, you know, is that's pretty low still uh, for something that can be quite devastating. Have we looked at um, how good healthcare professionals are at recognising sepsis, you know, by surveying them and um, asking questions? Um, I don't know of any work. Maybe uh, Brett does. Um, there hasn't been a large study as such of you know, health healthcare workers. Um, there, there are some uh, some papers around which talk about 
uh, GP training and recognition of sepsis in the primary care sector, um, but they're not really sort of large evaluation studies as, as you know of any sort of intervention or training or uh, anything like that. Um, I think what I was mentioning before about the whole deteriorating patient space, which is obviously broader than just sepsis. Um, what is happening now is that uh, that's that's where most people's attention are. It's on, it's on that sort of individual parameter moving outside of the particular range that's been agreed for for that patient. You know, um, we're now moving into I think more sophisticated monitoring, even not even so much in ICU with just uh, continuous invasive monitoring, but even on the wards and things, getting people to think about the relationship of parameters between each other. And is that an early sign that somebody's beginning to decompensate? And uh, so I think those sort of, as there's no real sort of national training uh, or evaluation, we can't really say that, you know, um, confidently about where it's sitting, but uh, New South Wales and Queensland have had fairly sophisticated programs of implementing pathways in emergency and acute care areas for sepsis, and they have been evaluated um, very positively in those spaces in terms of improving time to intervention for the patient and um, uh, you know, improving outcomes, and there's, there's also some studies around about uh, those. So um, those pathways, as I mentioned, have been developed in jurisdictions or states where there's been investment by the government in those those spaces. And so what we're trying to do through the ASN is to pick up that best learnings and evidence-based practice and try to assist other areas across the country to implement those pathways um, as long as once they've been you know, validated within the, their local context. Um, yeah, so that's sort of a bit of an answer, I guess, to your question about that. We well, both sides of the Tasman, um, you know, are quite vast geographically. I mean, New Zealand's a small country, but, you know, we both have rural communities um, versus metropolitan super city type areas. Is there any way that we can sort of um, roll out what happens in the big cities to the smaller rural areas so that, you know, their response to a patient who comes in with possible sepsis is, you know, as quick and as reliable as somebody who presents in a big city? Or what are the challenges around rural versus metropolitan, I guess? Naomi, do you want me to speak to that? Uh, yep, you could, yeah, yeah. To kick off. I think um, obviously access to expert advice is important in health services locally. And, and you know, the whole telehealth model and uh, having remote assistance, I think, is a key uh, enabler to help that. Interestingly, it's not hasn't been that well sort of picked up. Um, I was involved in a program years ago called Connecting Critical Care, where we put a, a terminal into a, an ED or an ICU, which had sort of three modes of um, continuous monitoring, real time, visual, audio visual, and you could also get to labs as well. And so somebody in a, a regional centre could guide someone through in a small health setting uh, about assessing a patient who was unwell and getting immediate help. And despite the investment in that technology and training and things, it's interesting the people at the sites don't tend to use it that much. And they found that even in the COVID situation, 
um, in that the government in Australia suddenly started funding telehealth consults, um, which wasn't previously funded for doctors and, uh, and nurse practitioners. And um, uh, interestingly, GPs are still keen to really just stick to the telephone, despite there being now a funding incentive. So I think, you know, for rural and remote areas, those types of technologies need to be used, which are easy, accessible and reliable, you know, but there's still a bit of work to go. Naomi? And, yeah, I'm just thinking, and, and maybe um, uh, one of the other aspects is that, I guess, um, for rural, rural and remote uh, communities, that there are... Um, as we're talking about the kind of uh, trigger systems um, or pathways that potentially, if they don't have them in place, um, it's something that they could have in place. And I think one of the awareness um, kind of lingos that we try and use is uh, just ask, could this be sepsis? And I think that is a really important factor for any person presenting to a hospital facility. Uh, we know that... Um, uh, there's there's a number of um, stories of our sepsis survivors where they they said that they presented to a health professional multiple times um, were not feeling well something wasn't right uh, they were sent home and this occurred um, this uh, interaction with the um, health system occurred a, a number of times until they ended up um, in a very critical state and it was an emergency and I think it's that. Um, again, that awareness for our health professionals um, as well as our community that sepsis um, can be triggered by an infection. It is an, a medical emergency, just like um, with a heart attack or stroke, and it needs immediate medical attention um, with appropriate antibiotics, um, and that really every hour counts um, for treatment. And, and I guess, again, it comes back to that awareness and, and potentially a... Um, a like a um, systemic uh, implementation via the government to make sure these uh, rural, rural and remote areas actually have appropriate uh, pathways in, in place. Because mm, they're often our most vulnerable communities too, aren't they, that are living, you know, rural or remote? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Particularly, and I think um, if we, we think about our um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people, our First Nations, that uh, they their um, access to um, healthcare is a very different um, process. Um, and particularly, I think for anyone in a remote area, um, they may not be actually seeing a um, kind of a, a traditional um, healthcare facility. So again, getting out to um, those uh, who are in those communities and um, who are the first kind of uh, responders or, or people that uh, might um, be in a position to clinically assess someone to really get that message out. So, Brett, you were talking about the um, the campaign for World Sepsis Day this year and the um, consumer stories and faces of sepsis. How did you go about finding people and how responsive were they, I guess, to becoming the faces of sepsis for the campaign? Um, well, I have to say that one of the... I guess most amazing and enlightening things that I've encountered in this role is working with the consumer reps or community representatives. There's a very strong um, camaraderie around people that have suffered sepsis and those who have had loved ones die from sepsis and they've developed a number of um, 
local advocacy groups and things. When when um, I came into the role, I sort of spoke with Naomi about first thing we need to do is really set up our collaborative advisory groups, and one of those is dedicated to uh, consumers in the community. And um, so I meet with them every month, and we have an open forum and we discuss all issues sepsis and I keep them up to date with what we're doing and that's how I engage them on all of our activities and through that process I was able to plan with them the World Sepsis Day um, activities, uh, discuss with them the type of messaging, the type of imagery we wanted to show, the, the type of um, theme that we were going to use and um, so you know what I found is that the there are, there are obviously a group of people who have suffered sepsis in their families, for example, who don't want to relive this experience again. And they're very nervous, I guess, and, and it's still a very sensitive issue for them. Others have decided that, you know, they've worn the brunt of sepsis, they've survived it, and they're going to use that experience to drive change. And we have a, we're very lucky. We've got um, some incredibly uh, articulate, uh, driven uh, survivors and their families and advocates, um, and they're you know they're they're always willing to contribute, always willing to um, to participate. And one of the other things that I do is I address uh, through our sepsis website. I get quite a lot of random messages from people who are either suffering sepsis or in post sepsis recovery, and you know they're quite heart wrenching these stories. And I reach out to our consumer group, and we've set up this process now where whereby I can refer those messages, go, go back and acknowledge the message, refer it to someone who's been through that experience for them to talk to each other. So I'm trying to keep it in a real-time dynamic sort of model so that they don't feel like they're just the nice to have on the end of the um, consultancy um, process, but they're actually driving the program. Um, mm. And then through that, they've been really engaged, I think. Oh, that's amazing. But, yeah, I mean, it's so important to have them as... Um equal members of the team rather than just, you know, phone a survivor um, to help us out. I was just mm. um, going to add to that, um, Rachel, um, so what Brett is doing with our consumers is, is amazing um, and I think it's fantastic, um, but just on the kind of research side of things um, that we are learning, I guess, through our um, connections with the consumers is that we know that, um, I guess, uh, post-sepsis syndrome um, is a real, uh, a real thing. It's increasingly, um, well, it's becoming, uh, the burden is becoming higher. We've got uh, more people surviving, which is wonderful news, but the um, poor outcomes um, from survivors, um, which is termed this post-sepsis syndrome, is, is really um, devastating. And it, you know, includes all sorts of things like physical, mental um, uh, psychological uh, problems um, that can affect people uh, well out to um, what we know, I guess, um, two years at least. And and that uh, we also have data on that readmission to hospitals, um, which sits around that 70% mark. So people who are um, discharged uh, after having sepsis, they're, they're around 70% of those will be readmitted to the hospital again. And I think it's around 20% of those um, are readmitted for sepsis again as a secondary um, occurrence. Um, and around 15 to 20% go get back into the ICU again, um, which is unfortunate. So have a severe 
um, uh, illness, getting them back into the ICU. So it is a um, the long-term effects of sepsis um, shouldn't be underestimated. No, I think that's hugely important, isn't it? Because we tend to, you know, we're very good as ICU clinicians that, you know, our success is discharging the patient through the doors um, yeah. into the ward <laughs> and, and waving goodbye. Um, but we possibly don't um, understand and possibly completely underestimate what actually happens for these patients once they do go to the ward, once they go home. Um, and what, you know, things like post-sepsis syndrome are to them. So what sorts of long-term outcomes, I guess, have we been looking at recently in these patients, Naomi? Yeah, I think um, just just on, just to follow on from your kind of um, summary, just I, I think it's really, um, it's a really big gap actually for sepsis um, uh, survivors. So, you know, if you've had a cardiac arrest or, you've had a um, neuro, uh, neurological insult or trauma, there's a really clear rehab pathway that you go down. Um, whereas with patients that have had sepsis, it's not a clear cut um, kind of pathway. They'll see multiple different health professionals um, after the, um, the acute admission. And I think that's a really big gap that I guess we've been trying to um, filled by by looking at um, our follow-up clinics in the intensive care follow-up clinics um, that have uh, really taken off I, I guess in the US and um, the UK but in Australia and I'm not sure Rachel in New Zealand if it's the same it's really a um, very limited number of um, follow-up clinics that are available yes. um, yeah is it the same for New Zealand yeah pretty much pretty piecemeal <laughs> yeah yeah and I think um, the, the the hope is really that the follow-up clinic would be able to provide that conduit, I guess, from um, that acute hospital um, event and, and provide context of what happened, but also be able to refer the patient to appropriate health professionals um, where their GP doesn't necessarily uh, really understand what has happened and what the long-term um, impacts are. And, and the the areas that we're looking at, I guess, for um, long-term outcomes, um, a lot of that work is led uh, by Carol Hodgson um, that you know, Rachel, um, looking at interventions, I guess, within the ICU that um, physical interventions that might help with muscle weakness, um, for instance, uh, um, that might actually help um, reduce those long-term sequelae uh, that, that are negative. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think we've really found anything thus far, like um, uh, uh, there's been nurse-led psychological um, interventions um, that haven't been, haven't been proven to be effective. There's diaries, um, ICU diaries that are in use. Um, again, these are all, I guess, um, targeted at reducing the um, psychological burden. But again, the evidence is, hasn't really been positive, but but on that flip side, I think the satisfaction of the patients and their family um, is something that we need to take into account. And these, um, these interventions are actually important to them. It's interesting mentioning the families as well, because there's a huge burden for the families, isn't there? With um, not just while the patients in the ICU, but with ongoing rehabilitation and, and integration. Oh, huge. Yeah. 
huge. Um, I think, and, and Brett, you probably want to talk to this, but um, the family members are actually the silent um, sufferers sometimes. Um, they, they really take a lot of uh, the, the burden on and, and all the other organisations, say, of the household, um, whether it's financial or coordinating um, uh, appointments and um, emotional aspects, uh, if fa other family members, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's a really big burden, I think, which isn't um, appropriately uh, supported. Rich, what have you found um, with talking with patients and families? One of the um, <clears throat> so obviously in intensive care, it's you know it's a fairly controlled environment, and all going well that you know somebody will survive sepsis and transfer to the wards and hopefully into a you know sort of constructive coordinated community model. But that um, sort of streamlined transition, if you like, doesn't usually happen. Um, so people are facing this uh, unknown sort of word sepsis. Their loved one is on, you know, um, multiple organ support. Things are often happening very quickly. And what we found was that um, the families of survivors um, and the survivors themselves say that, you know, some of them were discharged from hospital without even knowing that they'd had sepsis. So they never, that term was never used. And so when they went to their GPs, uh, with a vague letter around, oh, they had an infection, and they're sort of talking about joint pain, they can't sleep, you know, they've got, you know, urinary tract issues, they've got a whole lot of a raft of different things. Those are often seen as individual symptoms and, and signs and not really packaged as under a sepsis lens. So that means that often people don't have a coordinated post-sepsis post, um, uh, management model. It's all very much reactive. So we've just um, written the Australian Sepsis Network uh, Guide for Survivors and their families, which we're going to launch this week, hopefully, we're just trying to get the design finished. Mm -hmm. um, the plan, the idea for that is to give this resource to people in hospital. So while they're in ICU, their families, while they're in ICU, for them to just work through. It's got, um, provides sort of an insight about what they might expect when they leave ICU into the wards, what they might expect when they go home, um, depending upon the complications that the patient ends up with, whether it's cognitive or just um, temporary physical impairment or at the other end of the spectrum, you know, quad, quadruple amputee, which we have quite a few. Um, it talks about, you know, where they can get help, who they can talk to so that it doesn't sort of, they're not, faced with this, um, I guess, this sort of gulf of you know, fear and unexpectation they can ask before they leave the hospital about, oh, you know, the guide for sepsis says that I should ask for a letter to my GP that states that I had sepsis. Secondly, that I've been in contact with the right support group. And that thirdly, that there's a coordinated community model to support the post-sepsis period. Mm -hmm. So that's what the consumers are telling us they want and need. Um, and obviously it's fine to give them that ammunition to ask for that, but is, is, does it exist? So mm -hmm. coming from a different angle, um, this is why we're working with the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality on um, the clinical care standards for sepsis, which goes all the way from admission uh, in hospital care to post-hospital care and looks to try and... Um, uh, generate change, I guess, in the health services to setting up 
post sepsis coordinated models of care. And mm. um, so, you know, I'm hoping that with the consumers asking for that at the coalface and the clinicians being taught that at the coalface and then at a policy level we're trying to drive that change, that um, that positive um, improvements will occur, which in turn will improve outcomes overall. That's what we're all about, right? So yeah. just thinking, you know, while you were talking and a lot of the talk is around this kind of lack of coordination and care possibly throughout the whole spectrum, you know, both pre-admission but also post-ICU discharge, post-hospital discharge and the multiple components of um, a patient's care and the multiple agencies, I guess, who might be involved with the patient. Um, what we really need is a sepsis nurse position, don't we? You know, like we have ECMO nurse consultants and specialists and um, respiratory specialists and all sorts. So do we have any sepsis nurse specialists around the place who could, you know, provide this coordinated approach? There is. Um, Brett, well, you, you know one very well. <laughs> yes, there is um, a best practice example, I think, in Queensland, actually, at uh, the Children's Hospital. And uh, Amanda Harley and Amy's, I, she won't mind me naming her because she's held up as being sort of a, a real champion of post-sepsis coordination and care in paediatrics. And um, her role is in, you know, within the acute care um, environment and then assisting those patients into the community environment to make sure that their post-sepsis recovery period is coordinated, they are connected with the right people and that those people aren't just treating these people with sore joints or, you know, poor appetite or can't sleep. They're actually saying, okay, so you had sepsis. I understand you've had a systemic inflammatory disease that's going to affect you in this way. Let's, you know, pre you know, proactively manage that for you through this period. Yeah, so there is there is models out there, but obviously there's um, a local investment required um, mm -hmm. to, to get those models uh, implemented. But I think the challenge for us is to show that by putting that initial investment in, in fact, what the health services will reap is not only a financial benefit, but also better outcomes for their patients because, you know, they'll be better managed and more ch less chance of readmission. Mm. And I mean, again, I guess, um, you know, hopefully this kind of leads to more awareness within the system of sepsis yep. and, and the sequelae. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking, you know, with, um, with children, whether it, there was a um, more of a proactive approach um, to try and coordinate um, uh, post care um, with with family obviously being such a big uh, parents I guess being such a big um, part of that and if um, that was one of the reasons why uh, we also know that children under five are um, or is it 40 percent or around the, of all cases yeah. um, are in children yeah so um, there is a big burden there um, I also think with adults potentially um, the heterogeneous nature of of sepsis to some degree so the different reasons for coming in and and how your um, disease has potentially progressed to um, that severe condition of, of having sepsis and potentially septic shock may have hindered I guess those um, that potential coordinated approach um, after but it is something that we need desperately need uh, to you know not only improve outcomes for patients and families but I think the health system, um, the costs that 
are associated are huge, you know. Interestingly, um, some of the pre uh, early work around the sepsis clinical care standard I've referred to a few times was that the uh, commission staff, the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality, um, came used the ASN consumer group to do some key informant interviews to talk about where do they see the gaps in uh, sepsis care recognition um, and that sort of thing. And obviously the post-sepsis care model was a, uh, a key factor that came up time and time and again. So they have actually picked up on that as a specific target area for the uh, clinical care standard to to address the gaps in service provision, which is sort of really encouraging. Mm-hmm. We just have to fix it now, don't we? And put yeah. money into it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's an expensive, expensive business, isn't it? Yeah. So in terms of research into sepsis, what are our current gaps in knowledge, I guess? Well, I think, um, I, I know Brett will be leaving that one with me. Um, <laughs> I feel like we've, we've got a lot of gaps, um, Rachel, in our knowledge around sepsis. Uh, we've made small, um, I guess, uh, progressions over the years. If we think of, um, obviously, antibiotics are our ammunition, really. Uh, for sepsis, um, but with that comes the um, the knowledge around antimicrobial resistance, which I think we shouldn't obviously take lightly. So, um, I guess the uh, sepsis treatment with antibiotics, appropriate antibiotics, and AMR go hand in hand um, together. And I guess that's actually something for um, the listeners uh, who are um, with patients on the wards to really remember that um, even in the ICU, sorry, um, that, you know, to check your um, your blood cultures and to, to look at your antibiotics and what are being, um, what's being prescribed and to see, well, are they still appropriate or not? I think, Rachel, you can talk on antibiotic um, length of time. So how long should mm-hmm. antibiotics be administered? Mm-hmm. That's the balance trial that you're well aware of. Um, that's right. There's yeah, a couple of big antibiotic studies going on at the moment, right? So there's Balance, which is looking at the, the length of antibiotic duration for bacteremia. Um, and, of course, Bling 3 as well, which a lot of people will be involved in, looking at how we deliver uh, beta-lactam antibiotics, whether continuous infusion or bolus dosing might be better. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we're not... Um we're making small um, steps, I guess, with research. Uh, one, again, that is close to my heart is fluids, um, types of fluids uh, in sepsis, um, where we've seen that it, it potentially um, with those who have septic shock, that albumin might be better. Um, the the question or the answer, uh, or the question is we're trying to answer um, at the moment really is that the balanced salt solutions versus saline. I think um, there's a lot of um, uh, observational uh, and cluster crossover trial evidence that potentially balanced are better, but it's still something um, that a definitive trial um, needs to um, determine. Um, uh, Fluid um, volume, I guess, is being answered as well. (laughs) So how much fluid to be given? Is it better to have vasopressors first and, and reduced uh, uh, intravenous fluids. Um, that's another trial <laughs> that's ongoing. The vitamin C, thiamine um, cocktail. Um, 
I think that's been answered, that it's not necessarily helpful in sepsis. <laughs> And there's still questions around components of that too, isn't there? So, you know, ongoing studies looking at the administration of vitamin C, for instance. So, yep, absolutely. the jury is out. And then um, I guess the big one um, that, that flows through to COVID is um, steroids. So um, the, the controversy around steroids has been with us for oh, more than 20 years, I guess. Forever. Um, yeah, forever. <laughs> Um, and uh, the adrenal trial that some of the listeners may have been part of was published um, uh, in 2018 that showed the hydrocortisone was um, uh, beneficial uh, for reducing um, uh, mechanical ventilation and um, duration of shock. Um, it didn't impact on mortality. But then the other trial that was published at the same time, the APROX trial, which is the French trial, um, that used uh, hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone actually had an improvement in mortality in those patients that received the steroids um, in sepsis. And, and that's flown through to a trial that you're very well aware of, Rachel, um, the REMAP uh, trial and the other, um, I think it was six, was it, trials that were um, ended up being combined into the meta-analyses by the World mm -hmm. Health Organization um, that, that has shown that um, steroids in uh, moderate to severe COVID is uh, beneficial and has now been um, recommended as the standard of practice by the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to do a quick summary of all the, uh, what do we know <laughs> works in sepsis anyway. I know. And I mean, I guess the, the question is, will we ever cure sepsis? Will we ever delete it from our, you know, um, diagnoses? I think we can say that that would be a no, <laughs> but I think we can reduce the, um, the, it's mostly preventable is, is really, I guess, the, the key. The, at some point, um, sometimes, I guess, um, we are not going to be able to prevent sepsis in some conditions. Um, but that's my personal thoughts. Um, I'd like to know what Brett thinks as the ASN advocate. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think we're seeing, um, you know, a whole emergence of different sort of uh, illnesses and things in, in the population due to lifestyle, due to the environment, due to comorbidities, you know, all these different factors, um, which really sets a really fertile playing field for something like sepsis, which really... Um, is a condition that responds to all of those things in the body. It's the bond's immune, you know, the body's immune response to to what's going on, to the infection and everything else. So, I think you're right. I don't think we're going to see a disappearance of it. I think hopefully what we'll see is an earlier recognition, um, intervention, and better outcomes um, going forward. I think one key area that um, we still struggle with is understanding. We talked at the very beginning of this discussion around the global burden of disease, have it providing some new estimates. But in reality, like in Australia, we haven't yet agreed on a proper coding schematic to code sepsis. Um, and that was recently uh, sort of borne out in a report undertaken uh, that by one of the universities which ran uh, inpatient records an analysis on 25 million patient records and uh, over five years and um, some of the findings were a little bit sort of um, disconcerting I guess because it quite sort of under under reported some of the 
what we know to be the true figures and things. And what it highlighted was the coding of sepsis is, is problematic. The recording of sepsis in the notes is problematic. So I think at a very grassroots level to understand the magnitude of the burden, um, there needs to be a lot of effort to, to, um, to clarify that. Um, you know, obviously there's all these different inputs like ICD-10 codes, AM codes, and uh, we have codes we use in the 45 and up study in New South Wales, which is a longitudinal study over, you know, 40 years or something. And then we've got the global burden of disease uh, codes as well. So trying to bring all of that together. So we're currently doing some analysis in collaboration with Macquarie University in Sydney um, to uh, look at an agreed coding format for sepsis and then rerun that 25 million uh, case database through that new coded uh, schematic to see what impact that has based on all those inputs I've just mentioned. That'll be fascinating, won't it? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's one of the key issues, isn't it, around um, if you don't know what the burden is, then how do you kind of address it? Um, that that whole, and this, this again, I'm just thinking about COVID as you're talking um, we know that pneumonia gets written into the um, medical records a lot and that's kind of what the coders pick up on, um, but it's actually the patients um, that, that has died from or had sepsis, um, they've, they've died from sepsis. And I wonder with COVID as well, if that um, link uh, with sepsis, if you know, in that severe form is going to be missed um, again and uh, um, that the, um, our you know, epidemiological data is going to be flawed again um, because that that's not appropriate. That's not being appropriately coded. And interestingly, just on that, um, to mention that uh, LASI or the Latin American Sepsis Institute, um, headed up by Flavia, is it Flavia Mercado? Mm -hmm. uh, Naomi. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. there was a recent sort of uh, YouTube sort of interview with her talking about COVID nineteen in in, in Latin America. And her categorical statement was, we did not see patients die of refractory respiratory failure. We saw them die of refractory sepsis. Yeah. And, um, you know, that sort of has really sort of resonated globally, I think, across a number of various sort of um, organisations and agencies. That's right, because their, their patients are staying for a long time and their, um, the uh, risk of then the secondary infections uh, uh, increased and, and that's I think those those secondary bacterial infections are a huge impact on on the um, severity and, and numbers of patients going into that sepsis pathway. It's interesting though isn't it because you know so many times you see um, a death certificate that records multi-organ failure and but it's sepsis right so yes. you know <laughs> you think you take a step or two back um, and probably as you're both saying, the underreporting and recognition is is massive. So I wonder if we'll ever um, get it reported properly and you know to the true extent. I think the, um, if we did, yeah. would be would be very worried about the yeah. um, the numbers that we'd be seeing. <laughs> yeah, just, it's a bit like the patient. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say on that coding issue, a key um, area of interest actually is. Um, the application of explicit sepsis codes versus implicit sepsis codes. That, that seems to be a huge variable in how well 
the magnitude of sepsis is actually captured because some people will, coders will see a patient's notes and um, if it hasn't, if sepsis as a word hasn't been written by the medical officer as a, you know, a, a cause of illness or, or death, then, you know, they often may not record that as a sepsis episode, whereas it, if they looked and saw it was an infection with respiratory failure, for mm-hmm. example, you know, um, you know, that's that whole implicit coding, which is a real sort of grey area about identifying those patients, you know. Mm. So I guess it comes back to all of us to be, um, you know, very clear in our documentation in the clinical records so that people like coders can pick up on it, right? And also in explaining, and it comes back to, Brett, you were saying about, you know, patients don't actually even know that they had sepsis, right? So, um, so I come from a cardiothoracic ICU. They might know that they had a mediastinitis, um, a chest wound infection, something, but probably nobody's ever said to them, you've had sepsis. Yep, it's a key key thing um, for both the medical records and understanding the true uh, burden and reporting, but also for the patients and for them to be able to access appropriate treatments, you know, and to understand um, what's happened to them or even be able to Google what yeah. sepsis? <laughs> what yeah, exactly. yeah, and find the appropriate agencies if they, you know, need to get be in touch with someone or, or want to contact other people. Yeah, I think I just also I, I don't know how much longer we've got to go, but a, a, I guess a positive note to finish on is to say that, uh, well, to 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 bring into the conversation is that all of the consumers I work with, many of them have, were experienced that typical situation being turned away from health services on multiple occasions before they became so critically ill that nobody could ignore them, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that they say was they wished they'd had a known at the time and been able to articulate is just asking the clinician, could this be sepsis? Or if it's somebody, in a child, they say, um, my child, I've never seen my child this sick before. You know, could this be sepsis? So learning how to articulate that. But the positive thing was that they said, all of them pretty uniquely say, uh, uniformly say that once the clinician triggered onto the fact this patient is at risk or potentially has sepsis, um, the level of sort of care and immediacy was, you know, they were just so grateful for that to occur. And, um, you know, so I think that's our challenge is to, um, you know, break down that small barrier there just to make that recognition happen that little bit earlier to then get the whole machinery of the acute care system into into gear to you know going to bat for these patients early you know yeah it's interesting isn't it It needs a bit of pr around it and um you look at some of the successes with the ad campaigns around stroke for instance and the snappy short acronyms um that people have been able to pick up on and, you know, and you hear your parents talk about. Um, so, you know, that's what we need for sepsis, right? That early recognition out in the community so that um, the good care that we know can be delivered, can be delivered a bit earlier. Absolutely. It's just that knowing that, um, having that word uh, sepsis become a household word uh, and, and easily recognised like, as we've said, you know, stroke or cardiac arrest. Mm. So no pressure, guys. No. (laughs) There you go, Brett. That's what you've got. (laughs) You found your next job. (laughs) 
So if there was, I guess, um, for wrapping up, you know, if there was something, Brett and Naomi, you've talked to a lot of, um, you know, sepsis survivors and families as well. If there was something that we could take back to the bedside um, in the ICUs for nurses, whether it's around communication with families and patients or, um, you know, care of the patients and families, what would be a standout takeaway message from each of you? Um, if, if I go first, I think we just go off the back of what we've been talking about. I think um, that actually um, telling the family and the patients that they have had sepsis and what that might be, what that might mean to them after the ICU, um, I think is a very important aspect for our um, critical care nurses to really be able to pass on to the um, family and the patient that they're not, once you're out of ICU um, or out of the hospital doesn't mean you're going to be completely uh, recovered or back to normal um, and just to be able to pass on that um, that the potential for long-term um, negative impacts uh, could be present and for them to be aware that that's okay it's common and to seek um, appropriate um, care for that. Yeah, similarly, I was going to say, sort of beginning that sort of post-sepsis recovery period planning in the ICU, because obviously, you know, with the families initially and then obviously with the patient as they recover, um, but also to um, begin setting up that sort of support network that that family might need. In other words, who can they reach out to? Um, because I, I firmly believe... Um, working with the consumers is having somebody that's been through the experience there to talk to, um, which is what I refer a lot of people to, to the support network that I sort of work with. Um, that That's invaluable because there's insights there of patients that have lived the experience and families that um, help to, um, what's the word for it, help to clarify the language that people hear from clinical perspective but also helps them to preempt what might be coming down the track and also helps them to plan ahead. That's hugely important, isn't it? And I think, um, you know, having those contacts and being able to follow up on them for um, sepsis survivors and their families um, will be hugely beneficial. So we'll um, get those links and pop them up on the podcast as well so that people can um, use them in their own units if they're not familiar with them, if that's okay, Brett. Yeah, sure. Cool. Any final messages from either of you? Um, I guess just to, um, for those listening, uh, pass on the message uh, to your friends and families. Um, try and get that awareness out about sepsis and what the potential signs and symptoms are. Um, I think we can provide a link to um, some of the ASN um, fact sheets, I guess, uh, that have that list um, the signs and symptoms to be aware of. Yeah, I, I, from my perspective, I think um, it's important to realise that sepsis isn't owned by any clinical specialty. It's a, uh, it's a, a disease or a condition that affects all parts of the bodies, all clinical specialties. And uh, with that in mind, 
um, we need a broad approach to sepsis, in other words, a coordinated approach. There is great work happening on the ground actually in ICUs and EDs and hospitals all over the place. What we need is uh, a coordinated approach to leverage that experience, to enhance it, to better resource it. Um, because in the end, the investment will be worth the outcome and the, and the cost savings to everybody. And uh, more importantly, a quality of life for survivors and their families going forward. Yeah, so true. I think that's, yeah, yeah, hugely important to remember, right? Well, look, thank you both for your time today. Um, we've managed <laughs> a three-way conversation <laughs> uh, with it, only the odd slight technical hitch. So thank you both very much. Um, I hope the, uh, I don't know if you call them celebrations on World Sepsis Day, but I um, hope the celebrations go well and that we see this, you know, sort of flow-on effect in terms of recognition and awareness of sepsis, not just in our um, communities, but within our ICU communities and, and hospital communities as well from a staffing perspective. So all the best and thank you both for your time. Thanks, Rachel. And Rachel, Rachel yes. sorry, just one last thing. Tomorrow we're hosting the George Talks session, which is a panel discussion with uh, sepsis survivors, Professor Simon Finfer, families of sepsis and hosted by a professional uh, health journalist. And that's uh, going to be live virtual um, at 12 o'clock in Sydney, so it'll be about 2 o'clock in Auckland, I think. Oh, fantastic. Um, so I can flick you through. Will the that be recorded? And it will be recorded as well. Yeah. Oh, fantastic, because we could pop the link up for that as well so that um, people can follow up on that too if they, if they miss it. Yep. Oh, no, that'd okay. be awesome. Thanks, Brett. Have See a great now. time. I hope you enjoyed that. Sepsis is such a huge issue for so many with such ongoing effects. Something to think about perhaps the next time you are faced with a septic patient in your care. Do take a look at the resources available to support staff, patients and families affected by sepsis. You can find these at the Australian Sepsis Network website. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. And if this is your first time listening, then welcome. Thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success. <laughs>